can't. You take your fears, your insecurities, your worries, you roll them all up into a ball, you turn those some bitches sideways and stick them straight up, then candy out! Pick your goal and stick fucking to it. You wishy-washy motherfuckers. I can't fucking stand you. I wanted to make sure that out of the 24 hours of the day, that I don't waste one single hour. Those hours were too precious. And so there I just want to tell people, don't give me this thing, I have a difficult time, I need the time, and I don't have time for this, and I don't have that. You have time. You make the time. And now, welcome to the Be Informed Live Fit Podcast, sponsored by fitnessinformant.com. Alright guys, what's going on? Welcome inside episode 15 of the Be Informed Live Fit Podcast. Happy Christmas Eve, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Holidays. However you guys celebrate, welcome inside episode 15 featuring Joshua Shaw. He's a consultant within the sports nutrition space, within the CPG world, has an MBA much like me, and today we talk about the business side of sports nutrition, including stuff about GNC, stuff about retail outlets, brick and mortar, how supplement companies can survive in the sea of supplement companies and more. It's a great conversation. One of the best I've had because I'm very interested in that side of things. I'm interested in the business side of sports nutrition because some of these decisions that some of these companies make is just mind-scratching to me, and it's mind-boggling, and I'm thinking to myself, like, what do they think about before they do this, right? Like, how much research do they do or how much confidence do they have in a product before they release it, before they release 18th flavor in the plethora of flavors that they have? What is it in terms of incrementality for the business? So Josh and I talk about that business side. So if you're a supplement manufacturer, a brand owner, a retail outlet, whether it be a dot-com or a brick-and-mortar, this is going to be a great episode for you, but also for the consumer to understand how the pricing works on the supplements that you're buying, whether you're going through a retailer that uses a wholesaler like Europa, or if you're buying directly from a brands.com and where those margins come in and how it makes the price tag that you pay for that product uh, come to fruition. Uh, it's been a great year, man. This is our last podcast of 2018, so I'd be reminisced if I don't comment on Fitness Informant's 2018 year. It's been a great year for FI. We've done some really cool things this year, but honestly, like I could not have done any of this without the trust that you've all put inside of me and with me and with the brand and the following that we built up over this year is really a testament to what we're doing here at FI and really it's exposing this business for the better, making sure that you as a consumer are making an educated decision when it comes to purchasing supplements, making an educated decision when it comes to structuring your workout routine making an educated decision when it comes to your diet and your meal plan. And really what we're trying to accomplish here is give you, there's so many facts, I mean, and there's so many misinformation uh, on the internet and people within the gym world and fitness world that we really want to sort of be basically that vetting out process for you, that one stop where you can come and get real accurate information without the bullshit marketing and get the facts that you need. And with the supplement reviews and rankings, we do that with, with workout guides, with meal plans, macro guides, whatever it might be. That's what we're trying to accomplish here at FI. We've made a lot of noise in 2018. So much so that the biggest companies within the industry have taken notice. 
So much so that people want to work with FI. They want Fitness Informant to review products of theirs and competitor products. They want us to look into products that I've never heard of before. And really, that's that's the goal we're trying to accomplish here at Fitness Informant. And part of that is our 2018 Shield of Excellence Supplement Awards. Now, this has been a, a an interesting year. For those of you who don't know how these awards work, they're not popularity vote. They're not voted by the people. And why I do that is because a lot of these companies and brands out there will do these awards uh, in which the people can vote, and then the brands, what they'll do is they'll entice these people to vote once a day for 20 straight days and enter them into a drawing to win free supplements for a year. Well, that's not necessarily truthful, right? Like, you should get one vote, really, in reality. Like, when we vote for the President of the United States, we get one vote, basically, right? Same should be with supplements, and we really don't have that. So I actually pick the winners at Fitness Informant based on real-life testing, based on real results. And how you become qualified, how you become nominated for those categories is you have to work with our brand. We have to have had tried that product within that calendar year or previously worked with that product, whether it be a previous calendar year. Because there could be a pre-workout released in 2016 that could still be the 2018 pre-workout of the year if it's the best pre-workout out there, has good value, taste, grades, effective, etc. So this year, we tried a bunch of different products from a bunch of different brands, and it just so happened that Redcon 1 took home three awards. They took home 2018 Brand of the Year, which I don't think anybody out there can argue with me on. They took home 2018 Protein Bar of the Year for MRE Bar. Again, not sure many people are going to argue with me on that. And they took home the 2018 Sleep Aid of the Year, which was Fade Out. Now, when we do this, really, we have to look at what did we try in that category for the year, and those are our nominees. Now, if you have our brand owner and you have a better product, or you think you have a better product, if you don't work with us, we can't rate that product. We can't review that product. Therefore, we can't qualify it as a nomination for that product. This year, it's been interesting because the Redcon stuff got me some flack from brand owners out there. They uh, accused us of being paid off by Aaron Sigerman at Redcon 1. Uh, they accused us of being in bed with Redcon 1. Listen, nobody ever has paid us a dime for an award, nor would I ever accept a monetary compensation for an award. That's bullshit. I will never do that. I will never be compromised by money. That has been one of our staple statements here at Fitness Informant since day one, and that's going to continue throughout the uh, eternity of fitnessinformant.com. So that's one. Two, what pisses me off more than anything is that these brand owners and these people who are hurt by what we do or maybe upset by what we've done accuse me and they question my authenticity. Listen, Fitness Informant is built on my authenticity. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I have this no bullshit, fuck you approach. If you have a shitty product, I'm going to tell you that you have a shitty product. I'm going to tell the world that you have a shitty product. You cannot tell me that you can have a shitty product, hand me a check for $1,000, and I'm going to lie and tell the people it's a good product because then I will be exposed, my brand will be exposed, and therefore my brand is worthless, meaningless, and nobody will give a shit. I'm trying to grow this thing. I'm trying to grow this fucking thing into this revolution in which people use us as our first stop before they make any decision within fitness. So if you're going to accuse my accuse me of being, you know, disauthentic and being dishonest, 
there's a big fuck you for you because that's bullshit. I'm not going to allow that to happen. These people who have accused me of this have massive followings on social media. They could go on and do an Instagram live. They could go on and do an IG video. They could post on Facebook. And really, it could jeopardize my brand because they have a following much larger than mine. So for those of you listening to this podcast and have believed in Fitness Informant since day one or recently come on and believed in Fitness Informant, I assure you that I will never take monetary compensation. I will never take a bribe. I will never take any sort of bullshit shit to compromise my views and what we stand for at fitnessinformant.com. And if you want to question my authenticity, then here's a big old, if you're watching in YouTube, a big old F you because that is something that I will not stand for. It's disrespectful to me. If you want to be considered in any of these categories in 2019, work with us. If you have a product that you think is superior, send it to us. We'll review it. Here's what people don't realize. The landed cost for some of these products. Let's, let's take an expensive product like protein that retails for, say, $49.99 for a five-pound tub. The landed cost to the, to, the re- to the supplier or to the manufacturer of this is at most $25, bucks, maybe $30. $30. All right, so their cost is $30. Bucks. To send that to me, it's costing them $30 out of their own pocket. Do they realize how much time it takes to actually do what I do, to structure an in-depth review, to do the SEO content panel, to record and edit the videos that I have to upload, and on top of that, I drive sales to that product? Listen, your ROI on working with us is extraordinary. So handing us over a product to test and review at fitnessinformer.com is costing you nothing in exchange for what you're going to get. If you want to be considered in these categories in 2019, get off your ass and work with us. That is what I'm going to say. You guys know me as having a, a very savage attitude, and what really lights a fire on my ass is when people accuse me of being disauthentic because that is not the case. So with that said, 2018, closing it up. Phenomenal year. 2019 is going to be massive. We are going to grow. We are going to expand. We are going to reach more people. And how we do that is through you guys and girls listening to this podcast, going to fitnessinformer.com. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell people at your gym about us because we will steer them in the correct direction in which will lead them down the journey and path to better health and fitness through better educated decisions. That was a mouthful. I literally just came off the top of my head, but it really sums up what we stand for stand for here at FI. 2019, here's what you can expect from Fitness Informant in general. A lot more educational content, a lot more workout routines, a lot more meal planning, a lot more scientific uh, evidence behind ingredients. We're still going to be huge in reviews, still going to be huge in rankings. That's not going to change, but we're going to bring a plethora of new information using other certified personal trainers within the space. Uh, nutritionists, people, doctors, whatever. We will bring that information to you in 2019. We'll be working with more brands than we've ever had before. This site is going to blow up. We are going to keep it authentic. We are going to keep the bullshit out of it. And we are going to shoot you straight like we always have and like we always will. That will never change. So that is my promise to you. I also want to say thank you to everybody who has supported Fitness Informant in 2018. Thank you to everybody who's listening and downloaded this podcast. Uh, And thank you to anybody who's ever worked with us and who will work with us here in the future because we're on to something special and it takes all of us to make a difference and that is exactly what we are going to do. It started. It's going to continue to move. We have momentum. 2019, let's kill it. Let's keep it going. Cheers to that. Uh, I am going to saddle it up here because Josh Shaw and I have a great conversation on the business side of sports nutrition, business 101. That's all I want to say here in the open. I'm going to kick it over to Josh and I. I hope you guys enjoy the show. And again, if you like what you hear, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, right here on YouTube if you're watching. And uh, leave us a note, leave us a review, help us out, tell your friends. We will chat with you in 2019. I hope you enjoy this episode with me. So what I want to do, guys, is 
listening on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, all these different podcast platforms. He's been on before. Uh, we talked once upon a time about some things that are happening within the supplement industry and the business, and I thought it would be really awesome to bring this guy back on and just have more of an engaging, in-depth conversation on the business side of sports nutrition and CPG in general. And before we do that, Josh, I want to just pretty much give us a pitch, like your background, establish your credibility and why you have the right to talk about this. I can establish my credibility as well. You and I both have advanced educations. We spent time in CPG. Like we can talk about it, but I want you to kind of give us the four and one on Josh Shaw and what gives you the right to be able to speak to the business aspect of sports nutrition before we actually get into the business aspect of sports nutrition. Sure. Yeah. Ryan, thanks. Appreciate it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, not that I'm the biggest fan of saying like college makes, mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody the authority or a thought leader, but um, undergrad is in accounting. Um, and then I have my MBA. And then basically from there, um, I've had probably about, I think it's going on about 11 years of consumer packaged goods industry experience. Um, I have worked primarily with nutritional supplement companies for the first, I would say, uh, seven or eight of that. Um, and then when I kind of saw a lot of the trends in the industry moving towards the blending of natural organic and just a lot of the categories kind of coming together with nutritional supplements and functional CPG being like an actual thing that people mm -hmm. are looking for. I started to look out for other clients and beverage industry and kind of more food, general food. So I kind of went out and I got a lot of different experience over the last four or five years. And one of the reasons that I live where I live, actually, in, in Austin, Texas, I live uh, two blocks from Whole Foods, and this is kind of one of the epicenters of uh, CPG, functional CPG. Right. So there's just a lot of uh, companies down here that uh, you know kind of are moving and shaking and trying to get involved with Amazon and what's going on with Amazon and what Whole Foods uh, kind of means to the Amazon machine right. and everything. So I've uh, you know. I've been a consultant uh, for the last six years, uh, working with a ton of different uh, CPG brands. Uh, most of them, I'd say 80 or 90% of them being functional uh, CPG brands. And I know uh, that term might be a little bit foreign sometimes, maybe right. to your listeners, They're, even to my listeners, sometimes functional CPG is it's not really well defined in the uh, you just the stratosphere of like words, it, but it's one of these new things that you're going to hear more and more. It's essentially, you know, maybe vitamin added, fortified, probiotic, mm -hmm. uh, protein added, uh, some type of sensory ingredient, be it like adaptogens or caffeines or whatever. So that's, right. that's kind of an all-encompassing uh, term for a category of consumer packaged goods that has kind of an intent around it, not just a, you know, we're trying to satiate uh, a need for hunger. Yeah, uh, good point. Because so you mentioned that you're not the biggest fan of saying like education doesn't necessarily give you the right to be better than somebody. Like we're not at all saying that. I have an MBA as well. I'm also involved in CPG. I run a $140 million natural organic brand up here in Minneapolis for General Mills. So I'm very familiar with Whole Foods. I'm very familiar with functional foods because all of my new product innovations are focused on functional foods because that's really where – the direction of CPG in terms of food is really going. People are looking like for the for me and for we benefit in foods. And to your point, whether it be protein, probiotics, prebiotics, et cetera. But that's also the same when we look at the sports nutrition. Obviously, this is uh, functional-based products that people are purchasing at high dollar amounts. Uh, I read somewhere that by 2022, I believe the worldwide industry is going to be worth $85 billion, give or take, roughly. That's a lot of fucking money, man. That's a lot of money that is spent in this industry by people who are not as educated as you and I, 
and, I'm, and this is not to discredit anybody, but I'm just saying most people buy it based on a recommendation, a friend, a family member, a, a magazine ad, or in this day and age, a social media ad. Uh, but I, so today I want to really talk about like when people are buying these supplements, like how that supplement goes from manufacturer to the consumer and how, what the models are. And then I also want to talk about then the actual supplement industries, them, the manufacturers and brands themselves and how they, they, how can they survive and thrive in today's market where you have an extremely saturated industry and there's a select few that we see a lot of that are head and shoulders above everybody else. And then there's kind of these like people who are doggy paddling in the water trying to stay afloat. So once upon a time, supplement got to the consumer by going basically through a wholesaler who sold to a dot com of some sort. So Europa, Lone Star, these used to be really big. Um, there's been a lot of consolidation within the industry. Where do you see that wholesale model going from here? Is it sustainable long term or do they need, which I've. I feel like I know where you're going to go with this, but like, or does the wholesaler need to essentially change their business strategy so that they can survive into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think with the digital kind of consumption where people are moving towards uh, buying products, I think you'll see you're, you're seeing in all different categories. It doesn't need to be consumer packaged goods. It doesn't need to be sports nutrition specifically. What we're talking about here it could be anything, uh, even to the point of like restaurants or uh, mass consumer or mass uh, retailers, things like that. The middle is kind of washing out at this point because people realize they can go straight to the brand uh, to uh, work with them. They don't need to go through an intermediary anymore. So what ends up happening is, you know, before there were so many different layers of cost where, you know, a supplement brand came out with a product, they wanted to get it to market and they would, you know, hopefully try to get into maybe a, dis a distribution model like uh, Europa or Lone Star uh, or, you know, Muscle Foods or something sure. like that. And essentially, then they would pass off um, those relations. They would, they would create relationships with those sales guys that were in uh, those distributors. And then hopefully those sales guys would be able to play kind of the telephone game with the retailer tell them kind of what the value propositions, what was great about the, the products or brands that was around there. And then that retailer then again played the telephone game and went to the, to the end consumer and said, hey, this is why you should buy this brand. Well, it's just a messy process. So it's yeah. just one of those things where, you know, it's natural that when systems came around that was able to cut out a lot of that, it was just natural that brands went to do that. And in the sports nutrition world, Unfortunately, there's still a large selection of brands that don't necessarily either perform well direct or don't really do direct at all because they they kind of operated in a business model that was much uh, older. And they think, hey, we can't uh, create channel conflicts. We can't hurt our um, you know dis distribution. We yeah. can't hurt our uh, mom and pop retailers. We can't hurt these people because if we sell – uh, directly, we're basically competing against the partners we've had for you know five, ten, twenty years, and that happens in all different uh, categories of consumer goods. Uh, but for some reason, in the small pocket of like nutritional supplements and in, in kind of uh, uh, sports nutrition, it's happened a lot more. For some reason, I think it's because of the small knit uh, community that's in sports nutrition. Uh, like though it's such a big, you threw a big number out there, and, and if you even kind of add ancillary numbers like protein bars and and uh, energy drinks and things like that, the number goes way bigger than that. But you you have a small knit community of people uh, that know each other, and they know the store owners, they know the distributors, they know the sales guys. A lot of them are have worked for multiple different brands, and you don't want to hurt your 
brother or your friend. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a little bit slower of a, of a kind of an adoption process. So you're still seeing this like weird in-between phase where people are, uh, they want to go direct. They know that that's kind of where things are going. They want to do direct to consumer. But right now we're in this model of like still a lot of people are working through distribution and distribution because they're used to having, you know, 95% of brands that used to work with them or want to work with them. They had kind of the pick of the litter. They could have a lot more leverage in the uh, deals that they were working. Now it's a little bit different. So these distribute, these, you know, distribution partners are having uh, trouble working within this kind of new system. And like you said, I mean, they're going to have to adapt. They're going to have to figure this out. And is it, you know, cutting some of the resources? Is this becoming, you know, some maybe expert in the next um, adaptation of maybe Amazon or becoming some way of understanding the logistics better than brands can with Amazon or direct to consumer? Like, what is it that they can provide to the brand to make sense for that brand to give up, you know, some margin, a lot of margin in a lot of the cases. Right. And I think that's the biggest thing too. And if you look at, if we look at say general quality of supplements based on proper dosages, let's just go with that and try to keep subjective subjectivity out of it. If you look at a brand like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with maybe Myoblocks or uh, Inspired Nutraceuticals, it's a higher quality brand with some more expensive ingredients. They can't afford to go through a distributor because they're, margins or their markups to the distributor then would make it nearly impossible for them to make any money at all whatsoever. So they, they, they are forced to go direct to consumer, which is fine. I think they would prefer to do it that way. I think most brands would prefer to go direct to consumer because they're going to get the biggest ROI on their products if they sell direct to you or I through their website versus having to pay a distributor margin. And then, then they would go ahead and turn around and sell it to an A1 supplements or whatever it might be. But now our distributors now – Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like isn't Europa a distributor that's essentially drop shipping for dot coms now? So if an order comes through abc.com for a particular product, instead of once upon a time, Europa would stock that warehouse for abc.com. Now abc.com says, Europa, I just got this order, and then Europa will actually ship that order out from their warehouse, reducing the amount of inventory that the dot com has. Is that, is that a real thing? Yeah, they've had that system, I think, in place for quite a few years that they've okay. been operating in that way. And, and I think it's it's changed because a lot of the Internet retailers now, there's there's not many of them that are really doing well out mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, Amazon, I think that what I've seen recently, they, they own over 70 something percent of yep. the sports nutrition market. Um, the other 25 is cut up, you know, primarily by. Uh, bodybuilding.com still, but that's extremely struggling. And then you have, you know, GNC and vitamin shop that have their e-commerce uh, sales. The rest of it is kind of made up by just small, uh, smaller kind of, um, you know, online retailers, be it like muscle and strength or sups or, um, tiger fitness or something yeah. like that. Yeah. That's, it's a very interesting world. Um, how literally for us, when we grew up and we started getting into sports nutrition, it was go to GNC, buy your protein, then bodybuilding.com. Uh, then Amazon. Now, everybody, this Amazon effect is affecting not only just your online retailers, but the brick and mortar too. And some of the, and you've done a phenomenal job of covering both GNC and Vitamin Shop and the fact that GNC is closing stores left and right. Vitamin Shop restructured their entire C-suite. They're actually carrying a lot of different brands now in 2018 that they had probably not even considered carrying in 2016, 2017. What's the future, in your opinion, of GNC and Vitamin Shops? The, the big the big retailers within the space that, that still have storefronts that people go to. Yeah. I mean, I think they're going to, you know, you're going to see a further kind of um, closings of stores. I think 
GNC just kind of announced, uh, I think it was seven or seven or 900 stores that they yeah. said they were going to close over the next year. And that was on top of, I think, two or 300 that they said earlier this year that they were going to close. They've already kind of closed. Um, that number is very big. Um, you also have to consider, like, I think it, they're close to like 8,500 stores uh, globally, GNC has. So it's a they, they have a lot of stores. And um, Vitamin Shop actually has closed almost as many stores from a comparative percentage standpoint, though it's maybe 20, 30 stores. Um, they only have, uh, I think it's, you know, seven, 800 stores. I can't remember globally. Um, and they're, they're very only focused on the U.S. at this point. But I think both of these uh, uh, retailers are going to follow the model of, of most other retailers at this point, even the biggest ones like uh, Walmart or um, you see some major grocers doing this similar thing. With Now with delivery, e-commerce, um, you don't need to have as many locations in a metro area as you used to to service the same amount of kind of foot traffic. So, you know, if you were a GNC and you were getting into maybe Atlanta, Georgia, you might want to open up. 40 or 50 locations around the metro area to make sure you have one within a certain amount of, uh, you know, amount of spatially around. But now with a lot of their kind of traffic going maybe e-commerce or they can maybe ship things next day or, or something like that, uh, you know, they don't need to have 40 or 50. They can have 20 and they still have the same level of service. So a lot of these retailers are looking at their kind of retail portfolio or doing like a store optimization plan and saying, what, what is our perfect number of actual uh, overhead for leases and stores and everything to service our consumers in the same way with the lower amount of foot traffic? Because a lot of these ones, they're seeing, you know, uh, I'd say most of them are seeing in the high to mid um, same store comps, uh, negative same store comps with um, you know, here or there kind of bounces around. But sure. you if you have uh, you know, five or six percent less people walking into your store every uh, quarter. You don't need as many stores. You don't need as many store associates. You don't need to it. So it's just it's this is the negative side of sometimes the things that I cover um, with our industry or just retail, uh, grocery, all of that. The reality is is that it's changing and people are going to lose their jobs. There's going to be some bad press clippings, but this just kind of opens up a different world that hopefully is much better and bigger for these brands to operate or quite honestly, maybe even to stay around long term, because without that, they're just continuously holding on to a bunch of costs and bloating their, uh, you know, blowing, bloating their P&L. And then they're just going to ultimately go out of business. So do we want to kind of save, uh, you know, right. some people's jobs, you know, for the better of, uh, you know, it's just kind of that situation that everybody has to talk about. But it's the unfortunate thing sometimes that in stuff that I cover in retail that I have to talk about things in a not a nice way. But, mm -hmm. it, you know, got to cover it. What I think is interesting about GNC as well is obviously they have GNC.com. They have the store-owned storefronts, and they also have that franchise model. And the franchise model, if you've ever walked into a franchise GNC versus a store-owned GNC, the pricing uh, structures are different between the two. Now, typically, the franchise model, from my experience, is, is much higher. And I'm going to use Black Friday as an example. The franchisees' locations were authorized to do, like, a, I'm throwing this out there, making this up, 25% off. GNC.com ran the same sale at 35% off. So GNC, the overlying brand, we mentioned before, like, if you're going direct to consumer, you have to be careful with your retail partners and competing against them. In this case, I thought I found it interesting that GNC corporate purposely competed against GNC franchisee locations. And I just, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that franchisees model, if that's going to be one of the first things 
that potentially people try to get away from and stop leveraging the GNC name? Or is it that valuable to these franchisees? Or are they just clueless and they couldn't do it on their own without the GNC acronym on their front door? I mean, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, GNC has been alerting for quite a few quarters that they want to transfer some of their corporate stores into franchises. So in some geographical areas, people want to buy these locations, be it existing franchisees or new franchisees that want to get a part of the GNC model. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot of the things you mentioned, a lot of those on some uh, percentage is probably true. Um, I'll take this in a completely different direction and say um, what I was most kind of thinking about lately is that GNC is offering Amazon some exclusive GNC um, private labels okay. that have no like have no chance to ever be in a physical store. So that's fine for corporate owned stores because that's just a part of the GNC of the whole big GNC net consolidated uh, revenues. Who cares? But as a franchisee, now all of a sudden you have GNC offering um, Amazon, you your biggest competitor in the space. Mm -hmm. At this point, from where the world's going, you have them offering things that are totally exclusive and are knockoffs of a lot of the things you're asking your franchisees to stock. Like if I was a franchisee, I'd be, what the heck is going on right now? Yeah, Why exactly. am I part of this kind of machine at this point? What is going on? You know, and there's a lot. I mean, I early on in my career, I had a lot of store locations. Um, I have not been in a lot of store locations in the last five to seven years. So, but the beginning, I mean, there's a lot of really well run store locations in oh, both yeah. GNCs and in vitamin shop. I mean, people that are just crushing it, they could honestly, uh, you know, run very large, big stores or even their own kind of businesses if they wanted to. But there's also just a vast, I think the last number I saw over 10% of them, uh, were losing money or breaking even in the mm -hmm. GNC model. So you have a lot of people that are just like, they're just showing up for work, you know, getting a paycheck and moving on. They're not, they're not too worried about it. So it's, it's probably a lot of combinations of the things you were saying, but they're they're hurting the franchisee model by having to compete. And it's kind of the same way of closing stores. I think it's in the same thought process. Like you have to survive, you have to adapt. It's going to hurt a portion of your business, but are you trying to keep the machine going? And if that's the right move you have to make, that's the right move you have to make. But I want to kind of circle back because I don't know if I answered correctly, like you were saying, what's going to be the GNC and vitamin shop, like where are they going to go? I mean, I've talked about store lo store location closures because I think that's just the hot thing that people want to know about. But I think that the store locations that do exist, they're going to look much different. I think you're going to see them you know, take on these uh, micro shipping point type of mentality where people are going to try – like GMC has a, a really good advantage of having so many stores so close to people, mm -hmm. similar to Walmart. Why not utilize it? You are so close to people. You can ship things to people within two hours. Like think about such a value proposition like that. Now, a lot of people are not looking at supplements like I need it this quick, like a grocery mm -hmm. item, but it might provide some value. And if you can utilize maybe 10 or 15 percent of your space for maybe a small little warehouse to ship out of and have a uh, Uber Eats guy pick it up or a, a Postmates guy or somebody come pick stuff up why not kind of start looking at those models? And I think they will start looking at those things. I know GNC just announced the other day they're doing some experiential type stuff. They're having mm -hmm. a dietitian in place. They're having a smoothie bar. They're having That's great for in-store if you get try to get people in the locations. But there's just a lot of people that don't want to go into a store location anymore. I'm one of those people. I refuse to go into stores at this point because it's just, uh, it's just inefficient. I just mm -hmm. don't like it. I'd rather just 
you know, shop for things. And that maybe is a um, millennial mentality and somebody yeah. that's, uh, you know, people are going to start throwing all these crazy millennial stuff at me and you and saying that we we're out of touch and we don't talk to humans and we don't want to, but reality is that's where people are going yeah. and that's where the, you know, it's, you know, it is what it is. So dude, you brought up a good point because I always thought it was fascinating. Like why we live in this digital era where you can literally hit a submit button on your computer. I can get that email slash order form in two seconds and I could legitimately, like you said, have Uber Eats or have a uh, a local delivery guy bring it to you, add that that value added benefit of going this way. Or even with GNC's like if Best Buy has done this, like pick up in store. You know, get it pick it up in an hour. If you really want something today, I'll force you to come into my store by allowing you to come pick it up in an hour. I'll put it together. Now you come in my store, you browse, maybe you buy a protein bar, you buy an RTD. You can increase in or same store sales that way or in store sales that way by doing it. And I've, I've never, I mean, maybe that store doesn't carry stock on something. That's one way, right? But like, I think there's a way that you could model it where I still think that there is a value to be able to offer same day service, same day delivery on something like Amazon can do within your store model. And to your point, GNC has many locations in metropolitan areas close to people that I don't necessarily, I don't know the complications in terms of logistics to make it happen. But if I want a five pound thing of NitroTech, MuscleTech, whey protein, and a box of Quest bars, there's no reason I shouldn't be able to hit order at my home computer, walk into my local GNC after I get the email in 25 minutes and pick it up. I think, yeah. I mean, that is then to your point, like we don't like going into stores to buy things, but if we know we're going into the store to pick something up, that'll be ready in an hour and I don't have to wait two days, I'll probably do it. You know, I'll probably get up and go do it because I have to leave the house eventually anyway. And it'll just be interesting to see how things change. And I mean, Amazon obviously had a huge impact, continues to have a huge impact and will continue to change the way people structure their businesses, both in person, online um, for many years to come. Yeah. And to, I mean, to your point, I mean, with what you're talking about, it's called like click and collect or, yeah. um, you know, it's, I do a lot of, um, writing for, uh, e-commerce grocery and kind of an advocate for that. I've been an mm -hmm. advocate for quite a few years. And one of the things that I kind of always find most interesting is though me and you as a millennial, we enjoy, um, delivery probably better than we do a lot of other things. You know, we want to have something delivered correctly, but there's actually a very large subsection of people that love click and collect and millennials are actually like they're over indexing on all the other generations on mm -hmm. how they like to go in and pick it up because one it's the instant gratification you can pick it up much quicker than it can get delivered to you exactly. two you get to shave on shipping costs so unfortunately uh millennials we we, we are not the biggest earners in terms mm -hmm. of generational uh things so we like to save money on little bits here and there and if we can save time and money by doing it this way, click and collect has been a big thing. So GNC probably is, is looking at that. It's, it's tech layers behind the hood, yeah. making sure that things can get routed that way. It's also, like you said, logistics and the way the stores are, uh, the way they look to make sure that those are you know properly put in place so somebody can walk in and quickly get in and out. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer of it just because I actually, I still, the Best Buy model for things, like occasionally I'll be like, hey, I'll pick up in store in two hours, like my Nespresso machine I just got. I did that because, I mean, I I want that instant gratification. Like, I want that now. I could have, I mean, I don't know why I want it now, but I did, right? Like, it's it's this emotional feeling that we have is, like, we want it now. And I probably didn't use the damn thing for four days, but I wanted it at that minute. Um, and I could have easily have purchased something else when I walked into that Best Buy. I could have bought any little thing which would have increased the overall sales. Uh, you mentioned millennials, and you did an article on this, and you uh, ended up thing, and I think it's fascinating because I've been working with several different brands within this space recently in terms of, you know, the, the targeting of their brand and their products towards a certain target demographic or target group. And I think 
what a lot of brands potentially do is they create their brand or they have this brand and their assumption is it's a brand for everybody. So they don't necessarily take the time to define who their consumer is and they don't look to see who their target growth consumer is going to be. So um, you've worked with a lot of brands. Like how many sports nutrition brands actually take time to understand who their actual consumer is? A single digit percentage probably. Um, if you even throw them, you know, kind of – thoughts around and tell people, you know, what's your customer persona? What's your ideal customer? Have you guys mapped those out? Have you guys mm -hmm. put this together? Because, um, you'd, I would say I, maybe I'm giving a little less credit than I should because the ones that are heavy on digital marketing, maybe they do have personas because they, they market against that persona, hopefully. Sure. Uh, but for the vast majority of, of brands, they don't do that because to your point, you know, if you're launching a, say you're launching a protein bar or something that's can be applicable across multiple generational buying groups, you just assume, well, everybody can buy it. So I'm not going to, you know, worry about that. Let's see who picks it up. Let's see what's going on. And mm -hmm. what ends up happening is they, they, they end up being like nothing to nobody. You know, they just, it, it's, it shows up by, they're trying to be everything to everyone. And it just like, what, who is this for? A lot of consumers now, because of, the highly targeted way that we get marketing through social media, we're expecting the message to be brought to us in a way that's personalized. You know, you know, if you wake up in the morning and you pick up your phone, like with, before you start actually getting out the door, if you had to work or if you work from home, maybe before you plug into your computer, uh, you're probably getting a hundred messages thrown at you. Oh, sure. 95 of them are personalized to like you as a, as a group of buying groups. So mm -hmm. you're so used to that. If somebody's not doing that anymore, you just assume, well, I don't really know who this is for. So it's, it's not for me because they're not telling it's for me. So what ends up happening is these brands, they just stick a product out there and they think, you know, this is going to be applicable to everybody. Um, people are going to buy it. We're good. Let's just be as broad as possible and try to get as many customers as we can in the door, which just ends up hurting them long term. I don't understand, you know, as a business owner, like every somebody who, who's gone through business school and we've had to read, how many different business cases of businesses failed. And we had to obviously provide solutions to prevent that for our professors. And now in real life, we either run businesses or we consult with businesses in which we come across this every day. But Nike does not have a broad consumer appeal. Like they know who their consumer is. Under Armour knows who their consumer is. If Nike didn't know who their consumer was, they sure as hell wouldn't have done that Colin Kaepernick ad that went crazy, which was awesome. Thanks. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, to your point, to your point on that, I just honestly, I just filmed a video on that yesterday. I haven't put it together, but basically it was around the idea of like why Walmart or why uh, Nike did what they did with the Colin Kaepernick ad and that how smart it was because of how Jeez. well they knew their consumer group. They knew who it was going to galvanize and they knew who it was going to, you know, get the other side where they're going to be upset, but they were willing to give up three to $4 billion in sales from middle America, white men that were a little bit upset to get another 30 to $40 billion worth of international and millennial and younger progressive, progressive buyers that were willing to just be so excited that they took a social stance on, uh, on that particular issue. Yeah. And, and that's where there's a huge disconnect from the people. And I love the sports nutrition industry. I do, but it's completely, it's so different from working with brands in this space than working with a big fortune 500 brand that I work with where we spent countless hours and days and weeks with our global consumer insights, defining who our target consumer was, which we gave her a name. Like she's a mindful enthusiast. She has a name. She has a age thing. She has what she makes, what she's interested in. That's who we innovate for. That's who we create products for. 
And it, to me, it's, it's always shocking. Like, you'll see a brand that comes out with maybe a pro-hormone, and then they'll come out with, like, um, like a vegan protein, right? I mean, two, two completely ends of the spectrum. There's no connection between the two. They obviously are just trying to either be a mass-broad appeal brand, which is going to fail, or they just they, they, they fail to understand who their consumer is. And then you get some of those brands who are very hardcore in nature. Like, they just make hardcore supplements, and that's what they thrive and win at. So, I mean, it, it's not difficult to, to figure out who your consumer is. Are you doing some of this work with – I mean, I don't know. You're not necessarily like a consumer insights person, but you look at the business as a whole. Is that something that you tend to recommend to some of these businesses is like sit down and find out, A, who are you? Like who's your identity? Like what are you? And then from there, find out who you need to be and go after to make a successful business. Yeah, this – the, the article you're referencing was surrounding a project that I was working on where a uh, consumer packaged good company wanted to uh, particularly target a kind of an older generation, a baby boomer generation with a functional food, kind of whole food bar. And they were saying, hey, what does this consumer look like? What do we need to make sure we stay on packaging? Mm-hmm. How do we need to, you know, kind of what are the hot button maybe ingredients and the way we approach this, what is the type of marketing we need to look at, um, you know, all that. We were looking at the baby boomer generation in a way to, quite honestly, make a persona, do a customer kind of insight analysis on it to make sure they had the biggest uh, chance of success. I'm big on, um, you know, doing a lot of upfront work, but not overkilling it. I've worked yeah. for, you know, big beverage brands, big food brands, you know, these ones that are doing, you know, $100 billion companies. And what ends up happening is it's the analysis by paralysis type of thing. Like they just get, they get so far into it where I'm, I read a book early on in my career called the lean startup. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, based in the tech world, basically to ship out minimum viable products, make sure you get feedback loops, um, uh, you know, pivot in the market, keep yourself nimble, learn, 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 continuous learning. And I've kind of adapted that into consumer packaged goods industry. So what I end up doing is I do a lot of that work up front. I try to make sure I set up the brand as brand or product to be successful with the budget that is possible by the client. So if they're saying, hey, we want to spend maybe a couple grand on building out this customer persona, I'm not going to spend you know, months like you guys do at General Mills or, you know, but there's a couple days worth of work there that could be done to understand what's our biggest chance of success here. Now let's put it to market with a minimum viable product. Let's work with the feedback loops that are available in the market, especially Amazon. Amazon's great for that because Mm -hmm. you have reviews, you have um, whatever. Social media is great as well. If you're actually actively listening on social media and understanding our consumers saying certain things about your products, you take all that information and you're able to kind of adapt as over time with digital marketing as well. You take that initial persona that I kind of set up, you market against it. Maybe it does very bad. And all of a sudden you see there's a subsection of it that works a little bit better. Then you go and kind of pivot to that mark, but you have those abilities to do that. And I do a lot of that work. I would say that I work more holistically with brands than I do on particular project, but that's always just a part of the project that ends up happening throughout that makes it successful it's not you know a lot of times people don't hire me for like you know one a of an you know a to z project there's usually a lot more interlinkages that kind of happen but you know it is a part of what i do how many brands have you worked with that actually have a vision mission and purpose statement like on the wall printed out somewhere that they live by very few i mean very few i don't think that that's uh again that's it's one of those things where i think when you're starting a brand especially in sports nutrition i think those are all just 
you know, business school things that people were told they had to do, but they never really understood maybe how important they might be long term to their business. It also uh, comes down to when you're starting a business in sports nutrition, a lot of times it's one or two people that start a business. It's mm-hmm. not, you don't, you don't all of a sudden have $2 million in funding. You go out and hire 10 people and you need to make sure everybody's aligned. It's you and maybe your buddy or you or your partner. And usually you guys, they, they understand why they built that business. It's in their heads. They just have never translated it over time. And what happens is maybe in year 10, when they have 50 employees, it's still never been translated. And then that's when things kind of start you know, getting negative aspects of not having that in place because they didn't want to be overly corporate or they didn't want to uh, set all that kind of stuff in place. But honestly, that's your North Star internally at your brand. Any employee that you bring in, they should be knowing that stuff and knowing, hey, I want you to act and feel just like me. This is your business. You need to act like me. This is how we're going to go. We're going to roll with it. We don't need to like, you know, give you all the devils of the details, but this is your North Star. Let's roll with it. This is what we're going for. Yeah, it's, it's very business school. But I mean, to your point, there's a huge purpose with that. I mean, it's obviously it really kind of directs you how to behave as a brand, how to innovate, who to converse with, what you want to accomplish. I mean, there's a lot there that I think people along the ways tend to lose sight of when money gets involved. And all of a sudden, more money comes into the bank account. And at some point, depending on how mature that individual is or what they have in terms of how they were raised, money can really change a person and can change exactly what – and this this is not to say that money could change you or I. Like we understand finances, but if we, we inherited a billion dollars tomorrow, it could change who we are as a person too. But I think having those things in place and a structure on knowing this is what we, this is what we stand for and here's why and this is why it was created I think can really help people A, in the long run, but even the short term too. It's like this is why we want to do this. And um, you know, it's, it's, I talk with people too. It's like what's, your, what's, your, what's the vision for your brand? I want to be the largest brand in the world. Answer every time. It's the same answer every time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> they don't take time to really think about like, really, what is it? Because I mean, your vision statement is going to set up for like, and then from there you can determine your marketing strategy and how do you want to accomplish your vision and how do you want to accomplish what your purpose is. I and mean, it's, it's just, uh, I get it. Like, I think some people, there's so many brands now in this space. They see Instagram, they see the lucrative lifestyle for some of these CEOs, and they want to be part of that. And they feel like, hey, I can do a contract manufacturer for a thousand units of this for fairly cheap and I can start a, a supplement company. And then, and then I guess that's the next question. Like the barriers to entry in this space have been reduced to essentially nothing in 2018 because of contract manufacturers now even advertising on Facebook like, hey, we have these pre-formulated formulas, put them in a bottle with your label and become a, a business owner. How dangerous can that be? You know, there, like you said, I mean, there's, I think the biggest complaint that you'll see if people that follow the industry and people that you know, are involved, I guess, with the industry on some level. The biggest thing that I notice is the complaint around how many brands are in the industry, because especially people that have been around the game for a while, um, I've been in the game for 10 plus years. Mm -hmm. um, And when I remember when I first started out working for a company, when I'd go to a GNC or a vitamin shop and we had a pre-workout on the shelf, you know, there might've been 10 other pre-workouts on the shelf. And that was a lot. People were like, wow, this is a lot. Now, you know, you go into that same vitamin shop or GNC, maybe there's 50 on the wall, which is still, okay, not that big. But then you look at a digital shelf like Amazon and you have 50,000 pre-workouts mm-hmm. that are in there. And it's, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily dangerous. I think it's just the nature of what's happening in um, just consumer packaged goods or just consumer goods in general. Sure. There's a lot 
more access, kind of bringing back to what we originally were talking about, there's a, a lot of the middle was cut out. Usually when you had to start up a supplement brand or a clothing brand or something like that, you didn't know how to reach the manufacturer. You had to work through maybe an intermediary. You had to like know somebody. You had to know this. Now the manufacturers are speaking directly to the end consumer and saying, hey, you love supplements. Do you want to start a supplement company? This is great. Hey, all you need is $5,000 or whatever the heck you need to start it up. And as a consumer, you're like, I love supplements. I know what I think. I know what I could do. I, I could do this. Let's let's roll with it. And with a couple clicks of a mouse, you can you know start an LLC. You can uh, start a website on Squarespace or Wix or something like that. You can start an Amazon uh, seller account with mm -hmm. a couple clicks. All of a sudden, you have a Facebook, uh, Instagram, whatever. You know how to take good pictures. Everybody has $1,200 cameras in their pockets. Uh, you know, you can look and feel like an optimum. You can look and feel like uh, Cellucor or whatever with, if you have a little bit of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And I, I wrote an article about, can you start a brand with $50,000? And everybody's like, you're crazy, whatever. And I'm like, honestly, I've had people come to me with less. Oh, yeah. and, I, and, and, and these brands have done millions of dollars. And that's not like me saying that. Usually those people are also very intelligent because either one, they have some industry experience or two, they were smart enough to come out and seek somebody like me that has the experience that can walk them through the, the line. And that's not to say I've had other people that have crashed and burned. It's just the nature of what it is. But um, people can start brands for a lot less. And a lot of these brands that you you talk about on yours or maybe it's stacked or price plow or any of these, like a lot of those guys, one, they started out with maybe some shady pasts things that mm -hmm. you, they, they don't want to talk about. Uh, yeah. you know, a lot of them built on the back of pro-hormones, steroids, whatever, those types of things. Um, nowadays, maybe people don't start on the backs of those because it's not allowed anymore, but they do start maybe as this small, green, newbie person in the industry. And all of a sudden, they start when they start getting some cash flow, they're able to become something great. It's just natural like market. Like Eventually, the winners are going to win and the losers lose depending on the um, variables that are in the, the the machine. Right now, you have low barriers of entry with manufacturing. You have low barriers of entry with your sales uh, process. You can just you know do direct-to-consumer. And then you have uh, low barriers of entry with distribution of your messaging, your, your, your marketing. You don't yeah. have to uh, you don't have to have a lot of insights or knowledge to get started. And there's not a lot of regulatory around people to get started. If you work with a contract manufacturer that at least has CGMP certification, which is very low. I mean, people are most, most, most manufacturers are well past that point. If mm -hmm. people are saying, oh, we're CGMP, that's just the, the bare minimum. That means they're not making them in their, their bathtub or something mm, like yeah. that. <laughs> so it's just small. I mean, there's small barriers on all levels to get started. Now, 99% of those people wash out. They don't make it any far. And what a lot of these industry people are talking about, what ends up hurting the industry is that a lot of that supply that's in the market, it ends up creating some issues with market economics because you have so, I mean, this is going back to business school, but it's like, it's all the supply demand curve. Yeah. When you have a bunch of supply on the market and all of a sudden a, a brand's trying to go out of business or trying to get cash to pay uh, you know, to rob, rob Peter, pay Paul type of thing, they end up having to charge, you know, $19.99 for pre-workout that should have a price point of $30. Mm -hmm. And everybody else that's at 30 or 35 or 40, um, the consumer's not smart enough to understand the very little nuances between them. So they think, hey, why is this 
you know, inspired nutraceutical type of a product. Why are you not 1999? You're the same stuff. This one has creatine, beta alanine, uh, citrulline, malate, whatever. Like this one has yep. the same stuff. They don't realize the nuances of like what makes something a really great formulation, what makes something a decent formulation, what makes something a crap formulation. And you do a great job at pointing those things out, especially even like major brands that are doing something kind of shady. You know what yeah. I mean? I think you just kind of called one of those people out recently. That's a hundred million dollar brand that's out there kind of pumping their chest all the time. You, you necessarily picked uh, one product uh, in their mix, but it was one of those things where people need to know that there are some variances even yeah. within some really good brands. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's obviously why I, why our brand has existed and why it's actually been able to grow uh, just that blatant honest truth that we help educate people and still have a shit ton of way to grow. But I also think what you just said too, is like the, those who necessarily complain about the number of brands or who are maybe getting a little bit nervous with the number of brands, it's even more so a reason why you should have that mission, vision, and purpose statement. Because if you keep living by that and the consumer believes in that, any number of competitors coming into the market shouldn't scare you. You should be just fine as long as you're doing what you said you're going to do and consumers believe in it. Um, I want to talk about, so we just recently announced our 2018 brand of the year, Redcon One, uh, with Aaron Sinderman's team. You've been in this space a long time. Now you mentioned like Aaron's, Aaron has been around a block in this, in, in this space. Um, he's been involved in some stuff that he's probably not so proud of with, with at Prime Nutrition with some of the stuff that they got in trouble with there. Now he's got Redcon One. He's tried. He's obviously a family man now. Husband has three kids, I think. Completely different from where he was when he was with, when he was with Blackstone. But I I don't think I've I have ever seen a brand blow up as quick as Redcon One did in 2018. And there's a, there's a couple things to that one. I mean, obviously he has his own pricing structure with his direct to consumer that probably pisses off some of the retailers. But people are still walking in the retail stores buying his products. So like, how is Aaron Singerman doing it? How is he able to offer 30 percent off on Redcon1.com and retailers are still demanding his product within the store because that's how we started this podcast, right? Like you have to have that. You still have to have relationships with the brick and mortar. And he does. I mean, people still buy his product within the brick and mortar system, and he's able to discount the shit out of it occasionally on Redcon One. He's in Vitamin Shop. He's in GNC. He's in eighty countries. I mean, this brand is like massively big this year. Can you explain it? Yeah, yeah that's a, that's a tough one to explain. Honestly, I look at that brand a lot. Um, I don't work with them personally at this time, so it's not something that I'm you know going to share any kind of inside information around this. But um, I would say that it's it's very, and I think I maybe even mentioned this to Aaron is it's it's very eerily similar to when I worked at Muscle Farm back in uh, you know the early 11, 12 kind of phase. We went from fifteen million dollars a year to eighty five million dollars a year in two years, and that was you know insane numbers on those levels, and that's kind of where Aaron's kind of moving at with this kind of pace. And obviously, we don't know his numbers, and I think he'll probably. I think he's one of those kind of guys that likes to do the Inc. 5,000, 500, 5,000. So yep. eventually we will know what the revenue base is that he's working on. But, um, you know, he is quite the, I mean, his brand, quite the promoter. I think over time he's gotten a lot kind of more mature in the way that he's done his marketing, the way that they do their creative, the way that they do their, um, just their sales through their channel. They have really aggressive sales guys. They have, they're basically they're one of those people that are kind of hitting it on every kind yeah. of level. And, um, to your point about like, if you are a, um, if you are a local supplement shop or whatever like that, um, what ends up happening is because of them being kind of so out there and hot and people know about them, it's one of those brains where people walk in and they just ask for it. There's not a lot of brains where people go in and say, Hey, do you have Redcon or Hey, do you have, you know, optimum uh, five pound chocolate protein? Like, 
the sales guy doesn't have to sell that stuff. The guy yeah. just walks in. He says, this is what I'm looking for. And the guy that's walking in the store generally probably is not the guy that's sell, buying directly from Aaron on redcon.com or whatever. So it's a little bit different customer, but he's able to hit on that because he's like, he's pumping it out so much. Like promotion is super heavy. There's just, he's, I mean, he's kind of just blanketing uh, this industry with just like a blitz of information. And what I, tend to also like about him is that he's a entrepreneur that's out in front of his brand. He mm -hmm. is, you know, he self promoted. He's his biggest salesperson. He's, he's out there telling people transparent about, you know, Hey, this is how well we're doing here. This is what's going on here. He's, he overly shares a lot of things and that works well in a, uh, in an environment where people like to be voyeurs, people love to watch and people love to be a part of something. And they love this kind of reality TV show world. And Aaron feeds into that by kind of giving people some behind the scenes kind of look of the brand. A lot of brands don't do that. There's only a few that kind of have been able to let's peek behind it. Ghost is another one that does mm -hmm. a pretty good job at that. Uh, but a lot of brands, they're scared to tell the other side of it and give people the insights around going on. And I think Aaron just does a really good job at just being a promoter, being out there, being a hustler. I think he's also an extremely hard worker and oh, the yeah. people that work for him are also extremely hard workers. I think that's just part of the culture and, and just his vision, mission, core values, what he's kind of building at Redcon One. But they just kind of have this effect right now where if you don't have a Redcon One product and you are a sports nutrition buyer, you're not cool. It was kind of similar <laughs> yeah. to back at Muscle Farm. Like when we were launching products, like it was to the point where if you didn't have that lime green in your cabinet, mm -hmm. people discounted use, you didn't know what the heck was going on. You're not cool, whatever. And I think he's kind of getting to that point because the comparison between like maybe him and a somebody like Ghost Nutrition, both growing at probably a fairly similar pace where Ghost is controlling the channels and the message and, and they're probably mm -hmm. doing a more refined way of how to, they're approaching things. They're looking at things maybe more, I believe maybe more long-term in terms of where yeah. they're, uh, you know, going with it. They could probably, they could put more fuel on the fire if they wanted to. They're just not doing it because they're really controlling where you can buy your product, how, where, what messages are out on their products. A uh, little bit different of a beast, but um, I think that they're both great, uh, you know, great models. They're, they're ones that people can take and learn from both of them and, and kind of do things better in their business. Yeah. Ghost. I love both these brands like Dan at Ghost and what they do. I mean, you, you hear the term lifestyle brand, which sounds cliche at some point but literally ghost is that i mean it, it really i mean i think their website's ghostlifestyle.com and the youtube channel he is one of the few people utilizing youtube i think in a really creative way to help his brand we've talked about this before like approaching the olympia last year he just said you know what f you expo i'm not spending this kind of money on a booth i'm gonna go do a pop-up store at the link and have people come and hang out i mean it's just everything that he does and and him and ryan and the whole team over there and yeah, you can say what you want about the GNC exclusivity. There's a lot of people who maybe hate on that, but he knows what he's doing. To your point, like the longevity and the long-term approach. This at some point that exclusivity with GNC is going to end, and when yeah. that ends, it's going to be just a massive blitzkrieg of ghosts into the market and places. But he'll be able to dictate terms on that probably because they're going to be in such a high demand um, for it. Let me ask you this, and we'll wrap things up, and we'll have to do this again because we could talk all day. But our who okay? So a pricing question. And this is always a hot topic. Like a, we mentioned it before, uh, a pre-workout could be. If you look at what the, the competitive analysis of the market is, and you have C four at thirty bucks. Greg, I love you, but I'm, we we already talked about C four and what I think of it. So C four is at twenty nine ninety nine, 
and you come out with a pre-workout that legitimately you could price at $59.99. Let's just say that. But the supplement companies will never do that or have not done that due to the pricing pressure of it feels like the homeostasis of pre-workout pricing is $39.99. So they, they just divert to pricing at 40 bucks or 45 bucks. How does a supplement company approach it differently in price for what the product is actually worth? You know, it's tough because I think, and this is most of functional CPG, this is the kind of a big problem with it because, in, and I just talked about this in the, in the um, context of energy drinks recently, is that, you know, they look at a rock star, they look at a monster, they look at a Red Bull, and they say, I can make a better mousetrap. I can do this better than them. I know all these other nutraceutical ingredients that they don't know, or, or maybe they, I think they don't know about. And I can add these to my energy drink and I can make it much better and I could charge another dollar per can. What they end up finding out is that the consumer, one, has no idea what any of those nutraceutical ingredients do, why sure. they're worth an extra dollar. Plus, they don't have the marketing dollars to actually position it in a way that makes people understand what it is. They don't communicate the um, value propositions, why it should be worth that. So to take this and kind of apply it to the same situation, you have, again, a lot of brand owners that say, well, I can make a better pre-workout than C4. And you can. Everybody can. And that's, yeah. that's the great thing about you know this industry. You can. But the only thing that matters in this whole sense is like – does the market think it's better? And quite honestly, the market, and this is me as a business guy, this is me not as a science guy or a product guy. You're better at product advocacy. You're better at that kind of stuff. I, quite honestly, if you name a bunch of brands, I couldn't tell you what's in a lot of their products because <laughs> I, I look at things on a more macro level. Yeah. So I'm honestly, the best pre-workout that's on the market is the one that sells the most. And the one that sells the most is C4. Yep. And so what ends up happening is that's who pegs the market. I mean, that's your standard. That's your gold standard right now. If it's $29.99, everybody else is going to peg a pre-workout to that number. And though you have all these different ingredients in there, and they might be great ingredients, they might be you know better dosed and, and well-formulated, whatever. The problem is a lot of those brand owners launch a product, they put it to market, they you know, say this is the best. They use kind of yeah. these generic terms from a marketing perspective, and that's it. And they expect the market to just figure it out. But there's not even a trial period because nobody's going to buy something that's twenty dollars more unless you spend the time to find either a unique way to communicate it to the consumer that somebody wants to buy it. Maybe you have some trial aspect or something mm -hmm. that gets them in their hand. Um, something needs to happen that triggers this education period. You can't do it by just putting a product to the market and saying, well, the consumer is going to know that this is better. The consumer does not have any idea what is good and bad. We've talked about this before. If, if any brand owner wants to see this, go and work at a booth at a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a Europa show, you, you know, or the Olympia, the Arnold, whatever, and just talk to the people that come up to the booth. Don't be, don't tell them you're the owner. Don't whatever. Just kind of talk to them. You'll see what kind of questions get asked and you'll see that the level that you think that the consumer's at and the level that the consumer is actually at with these products are much different. So you're working against a tide that's kind of against you. Is it, not going to happen. I think eventually, especially if something triggers like regulatory or whatever, like where there's barriers of entry start kind of creating in the, in the market, you're going to have a lot of this price economics get mixed up in a, in a good way. I think if all of a sudden you wash out all of those, all that supply that's in the market, somebody can offer 49 or $59 on a pre-workout and 
people are going to understand it because the the spread's going to be much lower, yeah. the optionality is going to be much lower. People are going to understand. Oh, this is you know I don't have to look at forty thousand pre workout formulas to understand who's good and who's bad. I only have to understand maybe a thousand of them, and then maybe that's even still a lot. But it's it helps the consumer get to the point where they understand what luxury is, what's premium, and then what's kind of middle of the road and what's bargain. Right now, mm-hmm. we don't have a lot of that where. Um, you know, fashion or other consumer goods have these layers of goods. We don't have a lot of that. The luxury goods, you know, those end up being these like direct to consumer brands that have an influencer in front of them that only reach the people the influencer can, and they can charge sixty nine ninety nine for a product. And those are the ones you usually call out, unfortunately. But those are the ones that have control on their market. They're not looking at the whole market where a lot of these consumer or a lot of these brands are looking at how do we get a how do we become the next C four? Yeah. If you're going to be in a if you're going to be in a Costco or a vitamin shop or this or that, it's going to be very hard because consumers <laughs> are going to be able to see the difference. You know what I mean? And I think it's going to be hard for hard pressed for a sales associate or whatever to tell uh, Jimmy from Iowa, Hey, you need to buy this $30 one over a $90 one. Like he's not gonna be able to get that $90 sale. He's going to have to go for yeah. this 31 because he's a 19 year old kid and wants a commission. That's what he's going to go for. You know, it's just, yeah, I think I the, the that's biggest kind of my thoughts on it. I think you're totally right, right? The big one of the biggest issues is how do you articulate the value in which you're charging? Like, why are you charging sixty versus thirty, and how do you articulate that and get the message out? And secondly, the trial period. Like, you, I I always look at the bar industry because I have a huge impact within the bar industry, and you look at single unit servings versus your multi pack. Your single unit servings are going their velocity rate or turns are much better than the multi packs because the commitment from the consumer is a dollar versus five dollars or versus twelve dollars. And then if they like it, then they'll be willing to invest that 20, 25 bucks for. So, I mean, it, to me, it's still shocking to me that how many companies don't offer samples and, or like even a sample for 50 cents or a buck or just something to get it into the hands of a consumer before they have to commit to a 40, 50, $60 product. Uh, but to your point, like, I mean, you look at the, the automobile industry, right? It took a while for us to figure out like Mercedes can charge this because they're a premium brand. And, you know, then you have your whatever, Lexus and then Chevrolet and then Kia's like there's, there's those tiers there that the consumer understands a little bit more today. Maybe we'll get there, but it's going to take a collective effort and it's going to take an effort among the consumer to try to understand some of the stuff too, that's coming out, I think. So, but mostly it still lies on the brand to like articulate that. Yeah. The difference in in terms of like the categories you you described, I mean, with a, say you're talking about a pre-workout like a, a general consumer, even me or you, like if somebody gave us a blank bottle and one had a bunch of oh, sensory yeah. ingredients that ramped the shit out of your, you know, your ability to, um, you know, just have like a different sensory effect on caffeine or some designer stimulants or uh, nootropics or something like that. It might be a $4 product because it's just ramped up with that. And then you have one that's a $15 product that has a bunch of different like ergogenic aids that no, that mm-hmm. don't really have sensory, but have like building kind of, uh, effects to it. You need to take it over time, whatever. That's the, that's the problem is that you have the, you know, in a lot of the categories that we, we talk about, they have the ability to kind of put some very cheap ingredients in there, like a caffeine or something, ramp that up. And that feels just as well as a product that's 50 or 60, because the instant gratification we talked about earlier, the consumer's like, Oh, it feels great. This is (laughs) awesome. This is perfect. Instead of, you know, the one that's a $50 one that has $20 $20 cost of goods because they have all these branded ingredients. They have all of these really good ergogenic aids that are in there that people want to do, but it's all compounding. They need to take it over yeah. time and people don't realize, Oh, if I take this for 60 days, it's going to give me much better effect than I take this for 60 days. They don't think about that. They think, you know, one-to-one, 
this is just as good. Why do I pay three times as much? Or, or they, think, just, they think the cheaper one's better because of the feeling that yeah. they get, right? Like 3.5 yeah. grams of beta alanine and 450 milligrams of caffeine, you can sell that shit for 70 bucks because it gives people – Gives people yeah, throw a some feeling. Niacin in there and you're good. Yeah. Oh, God, I fucking hate niacin. Uh, Josh, how do people get a hold of you? Like, if something companies are listening to this and they want to hire you for their services, or CPG companies, or people just want to engage with you, where can they reach you? How do they get a hold of you? Yeah, so email uh, is always kind of preferred, but uh, so that's Josh at jshawconsulting.com. Um, also, if you guys just type in my name, Joshua Shaw or Josh Shaw, quite honestly, I'm like your first couple pages of uh, Google search. So you'll see my YouTube page. You'll see my LinkedIn, which I'm the most active probably yeah, on LinkedIn. Great on that. Um, I have, you know, quite a few thousands of connections. I get uh, quite a few people engaging. If you are somebody in the industry, CPG, functional CPG, um, nutritional supplements, science, whatever, if you want to have somebody engage and have people a good community of people to talk to that's probably going to be the one that you have to so but honestly you google my name and i'll be quite honestly the person that shows up so i'm pretty easy to find <laughs> yeah perfect dude well i appreciate you coming on people get in touch with this guy if you have any complications or even if you're just you're thinking about starting something different within your brand i think josh has a ton of experience and expertise that he can at least help you shape it in the right direction so that way it gives you an opportunity and a chance to survive and thrive versus uh, you know the, the complete opposite so Josh I appreciate you coming on I appreciate it alright guys that will be episode 15 that will do it for the year 2018 we hope you have a very safe holiday and happy new year 2019 like I mentioned in the opening is going to be such a killer year for all of us here at Fitness Informant, and that includes each and every single one of you who have supported us uh, throughout the test of time. Love it. Love the support. Love each and every single one of you. If you have any questions over the holidays or between now and the next podcast, feel free to reach out. You can contact me directly on Facebook or Instagram. That DM or instant message will come right to me. Ryan at fitnessinformant.com is my email. I will uh, take the time to respond to everything that I get. I always do. I always will. 2019 more educational content, more reviews, more rankings, and more real, legit information without the bullshit. That is what you're going to get here from FI. You're also going to get some apparel. I didn't mention that in the opening. We're at some cool new shit coming out in 2019 and allow you guys to support us and support the brand and uh, you know look good while doing it within the gym. So fitnessinformant.com is the web address for the website. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. Obviously, you can find this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Podbean, Google Podcasts, uh, and Stitcher, so many more. So go ahead, and, like I mentioned, if you weren't before, subscribe to it, rate, review, do all that good stuff, help out the algorithm. Uh, until next time, cheers to 2018, and let's bring 2019 in with fire, with passion. Let's kill it. Let's start out hot. Get to the gym. Do your best. As always, be informed. Live fit. Ladies and gentlemen, 